Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Francis Yu has spent five years as an employed physician before pivoting to a clinical career in his private practice, where he is integrating and applying all of his knowledge and training to create a space where he can optimize his attention and intention for the patients and their wellness needs. Dr. Yu, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me here. Great to have you. Francis, I hope it's okay for me to call you that. I do want to start off with a question, kind of get the juices flowing here a little bit. And it's a new one. You're going to be the first one I'm asking this new question to. And that is, how are you changing medicine or medical education for the better? That's an amazingly great question. And as you said in my intro, the words that I really gravitate towards in care and life in general are attention, like attending to something, and intention intend something good to happen. And I've experienced a lot of lack of attention and a lack of intention, just being busy and being running around and being mindless almost. And that's what I want to bring back. It's the attention to the person sitting in front of you or as an educator attending to the student with you or the learner that's with you and intentionally sharing something that's useful. And those two words have carried me through healthcare, patient care, my own life. And it's really what magic is. One of the books I read, they said magic is basically intention and attention modified by belief, emotion, imagination, and clarity. And I think those are two terms that, you know, we all know, but maybe we take for granted. We don't really think about it. We don't apply it. I know my mind is all over the place all the time. I'm not always attentive to what's going on. Not putting the right intention into the situation or the person. So maybe we could go into what those actually mean a little and how to use them. It's something we all do. It is essentially our basic cognitive abilities. If you are eating something and doing something else, you're not attending to what you're eating and you actually don't realize what you're tasting, you're seeing, you're smelling. If you look at Japanese eating, it's so focused on all the sensory mechanisms of eating. You pick up the food, you look at the food, you smell the food, and you taste it. You're attending to it. And there's really nothing much else going on because you're focused on that situation. And that could be anything from, let's say, for example, when people take showers, they do it automatically. So they're not attending to what they're doing. And more than once I have finished my shower, I get out and there's soap in my ears, right? That's happened a couple of times. It's just the attention was somewhere else. And the intention is essentially the purpose. What is really the purpose of what's going on? Ideally, people would have positive intentions, but that's not always the case. And especially if you're not aware of what your intention is, then I would say it can range and waver quite dramatically and unwantingly. Yeah. I do this all the time where I 
mean to do something. I walk right by the object I meant to grab, grab something else, and then get back to, you know, the destination, the room or whatever. Wait a minute. This isn't what I went out there to grab. You're just all (laughs) over the place. And I think maybe for the student audience and physician audience that might be listening too, putting this in maybe a medical and academic clinical setting environment might make a little more sense, but it's something we can do there all the time too. So do you have an example of how this can be used within the clinical setting? Very simple. You're attending, if, if you have a patient with you, you're attending to the person that's there. And we all talk about things are in the middle, right? Well, the computer, the screen, the OPQRST we have to ask, or the differential diagnosis we have to come up with. And instead of attending to the person who's sharing their pain or their health and things that may be troubling them, or issues, family issues, we're taught to be somewhere else. I have to attend to the differential diagnosis. I have to make sure I make sure I ask these questions because I know I'm going to be asked these things, which is important. But the person in front of you is important as well. And what I like to do is I attend to the person and then I re-clarify questions if I forgot. The patient didn't answer in a way in which that was clear to me, or they just spoke for a while. So I just need to get to the specifics of the matter. But giving the person the attention to who they are and not to, oh, what do I need to figure out from here? Or what do I need to make sure I get from here? Which you're you're not there then. You're 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 we have your thoughts and trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, and I think these topics, and I'm sure we're gonna get into this later in the conversation, seem to involve a lot of, you know, mindfulness, maybe some meditation type topics, similarities, being really attentive and aware, mindful of your current surroundings, of what's going on now, not thinking about the past, not thinking about the future. It's just so difficult to do. We've been brought up with these bad habits, if you can call them bad habits. They're just natural for us anyway. For so long, and just becoming aware of the difference, aware that our mind is elsewhere is difficult enough, let alone making some sort of change at that point. And I'm kind of wondering, how did you get into this and how did you start relating these topics to your clinical practice as well? Yeah, so I am multi trained. I just learned a lot of things. And one of my specialties and the procedures I do is called osteopathic manipulation. And for that, a lot of the additional education I've done, even my training, there was a part of it that was very focused on these two words. And these two words showed up again and again and again in my breathing education, training I did, or just reading about different cultures or spirituality or religious perspectives. And they all seem to hone in on this similar thing. and. Maybe something even simpler to, I realized that you can apply this in a very easy way back to things I already knew. So if you're listening to someone's chest, you have heart sounds and lung sounds. They're both there, but you're tuning one out to intentionally and with attention listen to one over the other. It's not that it doesn't exist anymore. I'm sure there may be other sounds too, like some borborygismus, borborygismus, and things like that. But it's about our cognitive abilities. It kind of grew out my search for 
my personal growth and development. Yeah. And based on some of our other conversations together, you, know, you and I have been talking for a little bit now online, which has really, really been inspiring and opening my mind to some other ways to approach clinical medicine. And something you seem to bring up are topics I hear sort of related to like emotional intelligence skills and how that's, I think uh, the last couple of interviews I've actually done have really revolved around really getting away from the textbook, the lecture-based learning, all of those things and getting into the patient, getting into what their needs actually are. Are you listening to their actual needs? Are you hearing something else? Are you trying to just turn the patient into a, a disease, basically? <laughs> What are your thoughts on emotional intelligence for student learning? How important is that and how can they apply it? Yeah, so it is so important. And there are plenty of studies showing that up to a certain point of intelligence, of cognitive ability, the higher the intelligence doesn't prove or lead to success. It's those who have higher emotional intelligence. And Obviously, talk about that for a long time, but Daniel Goleman is the one that kind of brought it onto the scene. And if you go to business sectors, that's what they're talking about and trying to be a good boss, to be a good manager, or to be just be a good team player. And I would say it's the, I think if we include that, some sort of curriculum, emotional intelligence curriculum, because it's their skills, right? It's, it's not, it's a learnable, set of skills that can be used in anything, but especially for medical learners, it is so important because you're dealing with people who aren't, didn't read the textbook, right? That's the the terminology we use. And we are, we think we're logical people, but we have these built in fallacies as it were. So, for example, let's say the classic experiments, they took 17 people and they were all in cahoots with the experimenters. And this one person that was, was being tested didn't know what was going on. And they all chose the wrong answer on purpose, except for this one person being tested. And they said, oh, uh, they chose the wrong answer, even though they knew it was wrong. There are tons of things about this that people have these predictable mistakes they make, and we all have them in a different degrees. So you can't say everyone will have the same level, same number of, same degree of these biases and activations of their habits, and it's where you connect with the person then you can realize, oh, wait, they're, they're, they're not a computer. They're not a textbook. They're not going to report their this history or their family history. They're going to forget things, right? You can't blame people for forgetting things. It's who people are. And the emotional intelligence really reminds us that, hey, you're a person. Your patient's a person. And not everything is going to go perfectly. It, the life isn't a double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial. Life is your life. It's my life. I think I know what study, at least one of the initial studies you were talking about, they had a group of people, I think it was determining the different lengths of like lines on a board. And everyone knew that this was 
not the same as that one or that one was the same as that one. And the one person that wasn't in on the trick, he's like looking around. What? Why is everyone saying that? Well, they all said it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go with them. <laughs> I forget what that yeah. is. Social yeah. deterministic kind of. Ash. I think it was Ash. I think that was the name of the. And then you brought up Daniel Goldman, which he has one of my favorite books on meditation, Altered Trait. I don't know if you read that one. It's very intriguing. It's a, the closest I've come across as far as like taking all of the studies out there on meditation and really whittling it down to the ones that are like the gold standard, the best ones that have gone through the most rigorous testing methodology. So it was really interesting to see what they came up with there. But separate topic, just kind of a side interest there. Clinical preceptors are busy professionals as is, and those wishing to give back to the academic community can be overburdened by scheduling and paperwork. With the Find a Rotation platform, physicians looking to precept students can register for their free account, control calendar availabilities, set preferences, and be done. Our system automates and simplifies much of the process. Register for your free account now by visiting findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. I am interested to know, though, with all these changes going on and, you know, step one changing to pass fail probably will be by the time this episode comes out. Who knows? Um, <laughs> the changing landscape in education, students are going to be expected to no longer just be able to ace tests in order to get into good residencies. So maybe this emotional intelligence and I've heard other people mention longitudinal following of patients. So not just seeing a patient for 15 minutes, never seeing them again, like you might in the hospital, but maybe in a clinical setting, a private clinic or a DPC clinic, the students being able to follow the same patient for months or whatever, those are going to develop different types of physicians based on those different experiences. And I really think that that's going to play a much larger part in the future of medical education. Wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. So I've worked as an associate program director and program director for five years. So I've been involved in the interviewing, recruitment, whatever you want to call it, that process. And definitely the scores ubiquitously used to say, oh, we're not going to look at whomever that's XYZ. And there's a, there's a technical aspect to it, just because if you have thousands and thousands of people, how do you actually just figure out who you're going to look at? But now with this change, it's like you're saying, what are we going to use, not as a substitute, but as a, we have to refresh what's going on. And it makes it tougher for the residency programs. It's true, but it's not necessarily a bad thing because if it forces people to update what they're thinking, because if you're doing the same thing over and over and just not working, who knows what really it will become. But I think what I've been trying to do with people I work with is apply the ideas of business things I've picked up with branding, marketing, sales. They're not medical words, but essentially they're things we do in medicine. And simply having an Instagram or Facebook is a brand. And there was that study go about using social media and physicians and the, the med bikini hashtag. Yeah. Yeah. Med bikini <laughs> thing. Yeah. Yeah. So 
you have to look at more aspects of people and pretty sure there are residencies that look at their applicants, you know, more than what they show on their paper just to see what's really going on. And it's more work, but in the end, I think it's an investment to really pairing a resident who wants to be at a particular residency and a residency that wants a particular student as their future resident. Agreed. I think if we're making like the financial comparison, it would be just buying all of the stocks that maybe the Motley Fool or some stock recommendation company sends you instead of doing the research yourself. Like the more research you do yourself, granted with the experience and knowledge for a residency program, the better they're going to find really good matches for the long run, not just who's going to look good right now. But I know that's way over my head in complexity. So I guess I'll leave it up to them to figure out what the next stages are. I do want to go a little bit back into something because now you're moving into your private practice and it's kind of a different environment, I know, in many ways. And one of the things that in our past discussions you brought up is very, very important is just that rapport that students need to develop with the patients. And that's not always easy, especially if you're fresh out of the classroom, you haven't really had patient interactions, or maybe the patient's intimidating, or maybe just the setting itself is intimidating. I'm wondering how does one kind of approach that? Is it really up to the preceptor to make sure they know what to do? And how much is up to the students? Yeah, so in ideal world, the team would all know what's going on, right? The preceptor, a whole team, right? The, maybe it's, there's a front desk employee, or maybe there's other students, maybe there are residents, maybe, maybe there are nursing staff. And it's really everyone in an environment needs to be involved. But people may say, oh, this person's only going to be here for four weeks. But I would say a place that really invests on bringing the student around, introducing them to people, and because it's scary, right? Getting that down helps the student realize, oh, this is a place where people treat each other well. When they're with a patient, it's sort of business, right? But they're just remember, it's a person. You're talking to a person that's there, and it's tough. I remember the first time, my first rotation, my first patient as a student, the resident I was working with, okay, go in there. It was an annual physical. And then luckily I was with a colleague. I think the resident knew the patient. So I know the resident knew that it would be a good teaching experience. But there needs to be a top-down and bottom-up communication. It can't just be the student or just the preceptor. I mean, sometimes it ends up being that way, which is you know, not the best scenario. But so everyone, it's the whole team. I forgot to ask, are you an IMG or FMG? No. No. Okay. So I am. And that makes me really wonder sometimes the difference in the clinical environments that are allowed for certain students. Because for instance, my first clinical experience from med school, it didn't technically count as my first rotation at this point. It was like a pre-clinical sort of, the preceptor didn't even show up. (laughs) He just walked out. So we had like 18 students following around this resident because they had to put two or three groups of us together. The attendee just like didn't want to do it. And then I've had other instances where you sit in the room all day not doing any hands-on stuff, even though it's supposed to be a hands-on experience. And then others that are one-on-one, just the student, just the preceptor. It's just so variable in that aspect. Yeah, I've heard all of those versions and I've experienced them 
to a certain degree, all of those. Yeah, and it's one of those, hey, this is the way you're supposed to do it on paper, but reality doesn't match. I completely understand there are limitations. We have a lot of students and not necessarily as many sites, or at least the highest of quality sites. There's always going to be a limitation of them. So we do need to have more sites available for students in more varied locations. So I think that hopefully maybe even this podcast to some degree can help students and maybe even preceptors kind of learn from each other. If they've been out of academia for a while, they're not in a university hospital setting, they can hear what other preceptors are doing, uh, hear what students are expecting and experiencing and kind of learn from all that too, because things have also probably changed a lot since they were in school and just keeping up with all that when you have your own practice, whatever that is in the hospital or private practice, is not always easy. I am wondering about two things that you discuss and they're on your LinkedIn profile too. One of them I'm kind of familiar with and the other one not so much. And that's MBTI and I'm not even sure I'm going to say this right, the Enneagram and Enneagram? Yeah, the Enneagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, what are those? So the short version of them is that they're both models of the human psyche behavior identity. The MBTI is very modern, actually. It's based on a psychiatrist from the 20th century, Dr. Carl Gustav Jung, who was a mentee, friend, and then rival of Dr. Sigmund Freud, who, you know, everyone more ubiquitously known. And then his, this was the age where it was more empirical science versus data-driven. And then he made this system of, I don't like using the word personality because now people have different ideas what it means, but just how people are different. And then it became a way to help people in their career or know the differences for the common person because Dr. Jung was interested in pathology. He was a psychiatrist. But then these two women, Myers and Briggs, who are a mother and daughter team, they turned it into, well, not turned it into, but they applied those ideas and made a way for to apply it to the general populace. And it's been used everything from personal coaching to team development to executive coaching to team development in businesses. It was a very hot thing in the Oh, we used MBTI to use our team. And I liked it because I like it because it's very useful if you really know what it's about. Unfortunate thing is there's so much misconception and kind of explain it like this. Patients can go to Dr. Google to look up things. But similarly, people who don't know about MBTI can just Google it and find things that are not 100% useful or presented in the best way. And Enneagram is another model which has to do with types and different motivations and drives of people. And it has modern history, but it's rooted in a lot of more older traditions as well. But the similar to MBTI, people like these type things. And it's also used now more so, I'd say it's gaining ground in the business world. Of course, in medicine, it's always 10 to 20 years behind even basic science research. So I would say in, I don't know, five, 10 years, it's going to be, oh, okay, that's what the Enneagram is in the medical world. And there is actually this one study, if you do an online search about, I think there was, I should know this, but I don't. It, it was a study using the Enneagram with medical students and with empathy. I believe it was for the empathy. 
and seeing what types may reflect higher level of empathy to begin with and things like this. So short version is there are different models to explain and how people are different and how they're motivated and how they decide to do things and without them even knowing. And that's the short version of it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, I've definitely heard the MBTI for many years in many different settings, not so much in the medical setting. So that's new how it, I don't know if students should use it for themselves or for assessment of patient personalities or if preceptors use it for student personalities. And it just sounds like interesting thing that I haven't heard in that context. I would say it's more used for, let's say, in the team. Let's say you have this type or this group of people in the team always seem to do things this way and this other group doesn't. Why is it that they clash? Why is it that they agree on these things and not on these things? I know there are people using it clinically. It's a little bit time consuming and requires a lot of attention, which I think if you have it, great tool to use. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I think we've covered so much here with just getting into the patient's mind a little bit building a good rapport with them, some of the emotional intelligence aspects that, you know, going forward, we're going to need a lot more personal development, I think, for being good providers. And especially as some of the recent, I'd say, trends would be getting away from these standardized exams that might not give a full representation of a student or a provider's abilities. So I know you also have your coaching for physicians and you have a podcast and where can the students and audience go to find out more about you and the topics you like to discuss? I think that it seems like I have a podcast because I am ubiquitously on a lot of podcasts now, but I actually don't have a podcast. I'm working on one though. The coaching stuff is definitely my non-clinical side of what I do. I'm part-time private practice by myself and part-time doing this other stuff. And really, everything is Dr. Francis Yu, whether it's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, my website. That's one easy thing. Just make everything the same so that people aren't guessing where you are on the internet. So yeah, Dr. Francis Yu is who I am. Definitely easier to do that. People have different names on every social media. It's really hard to find them. It's really hard to tag them too when I'm making these posts about the shows afterwards. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, great. So Dr. Francis Yu, Any last words, parting thoughts for the audience? Similarly, how we're getting away from having numbers dictates people's future. Still, the school and training is based on making sure you're fitting into this category of capable, competent doctor, which, you know, we all doctors should be trained, competent and all of that. But the one thing I've seen people lose is not being able to learn about their own soul, about themselves throughout medical school and residency. It's kind of, you're the doctor, you're the doctor, you're the doctor. Well, you're also a person and definitely invest in relationships, your soul discovery, things that are meaningful, that Go beyond your doctor title because otherwise your doctor persona will take over everything. Where people happen to be smart enough and diligent enough to go through medical school and get a doctorate degree. 
I think we can all learn a thing or two from that and about ourselves. But thank you so much, Dr. Hugh, for coming on the show. You're welcome. It was fun. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.